Heavenly Father, what a gift you've given us in this body that we gather with here on Sunday mornings. What a gift it is to be with friends and with family, with our brothers and sisters. What a gift it is, Father, to study your word. What a gift it is, Father, to have a church that values the contributions of each and every person. There are not clergy and laity. There are not staff and congregants, Father. We're all, we're all the same. We're all believers who want to follow and serve, and you've given us this place so that we may do both. We may follow and serve. Lord, I ask that you would give us a heart to be a participant at a level that pleases you. And that we would take things we learn, like we've learned in this book and in other times past, other studies, and we want to apply these things. Father, we'd be convicted at times and we'd live differently and we'd think differently, but then we'd also want to act differently, Father. We'd want to do new things, better things, because of what we've learned. Father, I also pray that what we do these things for is evermost in our minds, that we concern ourselves with reaching others for the sake of the gospel. That we would understand the time is short and that we want, we want to reach people before that time is over. Give us hearts that look outward, Father. Give us hearts that concern ourselves with what you are concerned with, not with what we are concerned with. And strengthen us, Father, for the work that lies ahead, each to another. Helping us, Father, to strengthen the, the knees that are feeble, as you say in Hebrews so that we would be stronger together than we can be individually and, and that we'd be selfless in our desires. Let the Word do these great works in our heart, for we know it pleases you and for we know you've called us to do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're ready to wrap up, finally, you might add, our examination of Christian liberty that Paul's been engaged in now for the last three chapters. And today we're actually going to circle back around to the place Paul started in this conversation back in chapter 8, to the very question of whether a Christian has the liberty to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, if you remember back in chapter 8 when we started this section, Paul actually addressed this question right away when he, when he started the conversation in chapter 8. He said it very straightforward. Yes, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols because he said a Christian has freedom to eat anything. We know that idols don't actually exist except in the minds of the pagan worshipers. And so we're not sinning because we eat a steak, regardless of what may have been done to that piece of meat before it showed up on our plate. That's where Paul started in this conversation. But of course, that's not the end of the story, because the situation is more complicated than merely whether or not we have liberty to eat that meat. In fact, Paul has spent two more chapters on this topic because there are some questions we have to consider before we just engage in our liberty. Those questions are much broader than whether or not a specific action is sinful. We have to consider the impact our action has on others. We have to consider our witness. And we have to consider our effectiveness in ministry as an ambassador for Christ. Those are the questions we have to answer before we decide whether to do something or not that we have liberty to do. And in the end, Paul finishes last week in, in the last part of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. He finished with the conclusion that self-restraint is often the wiser choice than to exercise our liberty because the choice to restrain our liberty may carry the possibility of greater reward, more effective ministry to please the Lord through that restraint. So more often than not, we might find ourselves restraining 
rather than exercising our liberty. This reminds me of the story of a pastor who was looking one time for a used lawnmower, an inexpensive lawnmower, so he could mow the church grounds. And he answers a want ad in the paper. And he meets this young boy who's selling the lawnmower he used in his little lawn mowing business. And so the pastor asks, how much do you want for it? And the young man says, I just want enough so that I can go and buy the bicycle I've always wanted. And that touched the pastor's heart. So after a moment of consideration, he decided to generously offer far more than the mower was actually worth as a testimony, as a testimony of God's goodness to this young boy. And, of course, the boy was overjoyed at the prospect of finally getting the bike and having so much money from just the sale of that lawnmower. But at that point, the pastor realized he had never bothered to find out whether the mower even runs. And so while he's standing there with the young boy, he bends over and pulls on the cord to try to start the mower. And after a number of pulls on the cord, the mower hasn't even shown the the slightest indication of coming to life. And so the preacher tells the boy, calls him over and says, hey, I can't get your mower to start. And the young boy says, well, that's because you have to cuss at it before it'll start. And the preacher says, well, I'm a minister and I don't cuss. In fact, he says it's been so long since I've ever cussed that I'm not even sure if I can remember how to do it anymore. And the young boy says, well, you know what? Just keep pulling on that cord and it'll come back to you. (laughs) Now, when I selected that story, I had a way of fitting that in, but I've completely lost how that fits to anything I'm going to say. But I like it anyway. So eating meat sacrificed to idols, back to the topic, isn't a sin. Paul said that. But the church is to consider the impact of their choice on themselves and on others. But now the question remains, where does that leave the church? Can you imagine someone in the church in Corinth having read this far through Paul's letter and they're listening? They're thinking, OK, well, can we eat it or not? <laughs> said yes, but then he seemed to say, no, I'm not sure where that leaves us. Right. Well, that's where Paul now goes in this conversation. He's going to address should they eat it or not? He's going to address Are they permitted to visit the temples or not? And he's going to address how are they to go shopping in the Agora for their meat when these two sources of meat are all mixed together anyway? In other words, he's going to do what any good teacher does. After laying out theory, after teaching principles, a good teacher is going to help the student by making the application with them to the specific issue at hand. And that's what Paul now does. He takes all of the theory, all of the biblical principle that we've listened to for the last several weeks, and he's going to apply it to the main question and show you how you take liberty and self-restraint and concern for your witness and a desire to please the Lord, and you put it all together in a practical moment. So let's begin with that. In chapter 10, verses 14 and onward, that's where we pick up. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? 
Paul now has started to make the application. And as we ended last week in that first verse I read, Paul summarizes his chief concern. What's his chief concern in all that he's taught for this church? His chief concern is that the church is flirting with idolatry as they entertain this behavior to eat the meat. Their desire to enjoy that top quality meat is so strong, that fleshly desire is so strong that they're willing to risk slipping into idolatry in order to have it. And in doing so, they're following the footsteps of those who were in the desert. The lesson he taught us earlier of Israel and how their flesh led them at times into idolatry. They're so immature, they think they can resist temptations that are common to all men, Paul has said to them. So he's told the church, look, don't play around with this stuff. Flee idolatry. Steer a wide path around these things. Discipline your flesh's desires so that you don't get trapped by them. And then to this immature group, a group who thinks itself to be wise and strong, Paul says, all right, well, let me talk to you as if you're wise then. Let me talk to you wise man to wise man. If you're truly wise and discerning, then you're going to recognize the sense of what I'm about to tell you. And then Paul begins to apply what he's taught them. In verse 16, he looks past the question of just eating or not eating. And he begins to consider the impact like they should have been doing the impact of their testimony and the impact of their influence in the city. And insightfully, he draws a comparison to another meal. I love the way Paul does this This is a very insightful method as a teacher. He says, let's see what lessons we can draw from our Christian experience, one that also involves a meal of sorts. What lessons are we taught about our meal? And then consider what that means in the light of their meal. Paul asks, don't we share a common cup of wine and a common bread when we share in the communion meal that commemorates Christ's death? And of course, yes, we do. As every Christian knows, or as we should know anyway, these elements, the bread and the wine, picture the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They remind us of his death. Now, for those who might be wondering, because I know it's taught in other circles, particularly in the Catholic tradition, this verse is not saying that the bread and the wine of the communion meal are literally the blood and the body of Christ, as the Catholics might maintain. Paul is recognizing them as powerful symbols, though, and the symbology and the meaning behind them become the issue. And so Paul says, when you and I share in the communion meal, these symbols have meaning. They communicate that we are joining with him through faith in that new covenant and that we are one together in that view. Are the elements actually Christ's blood and body? No, of course. But they take on that meaning, they substitute for those things. So what does it mean when we take part in the communion meal? What do the sharing of these things mean spiritually? What are they saying to people? Why do we practice it? What's the message? First, notice in verse 17, Paul says that when the body of Christ shares in the meal, we communicate we are one with each other and with Christ. We don't do this here, and I know it's not done traditionally as much anymore. But in the day that Paul wrote this, it would have been the tradition That one loaf of bread would have been the source for the bread that's eaten in the room. So they'd start with a loaf, they'd crumble it up, or they'd pull pieces off it, however they did it. And as you and I would eat those individual pieces, think of the symbology. One loaf of bread, one whole, has been divided and put a little of itself in each of our bodies. So from that point of view, the bread is now distributed within all of our physical bodies, and it's as if we've all been united in that way. The piece of bread that's in me is the same piece of bread that's in you. And it's a symbol, but that symbol is yet a powerful one. It communicates that we believe by our faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit that accompanies our faith, we have been made part of a single whole 
by the sharing of something that we each have by that spirit. So in a symbolic manner, we testify we are one body by the indwelling of Christ and we are that one body by faith. And the Israelites, Paul uses as another example, he says, when the Israelites brought their animals, their lambs to sacrifice at Passover, they all shared in the meat of that sacrifice. Their common participation in that sacrificial ritual communicated they were one people under God. They were united in one covenant given to them as a people and their shared experience made that point. So the meal may be symbolic, but those who choose to participate in it are making a statement. When you and I participate in the communion meal here, it may be symbolic, but we are saying something to the world and to everyone around us. We're saying we believe we are part of one body. We believe that Christ has united us. We believe that his death saves us. That's the statement we're making. The meat sacrificed in Corinth meant nothing to Christians, spiritually speaking. As Paul said, idols are nothing. Meat sacrificed to idols are nothing. Those so-called gods do not really exist. Paul says it again in verse 19. But now Paul says, you know, that's not the point. That truth is not the point. The point is, what message do you send when you participate in a meal that has religious overtones, that has a symbolic meaning associated with it? If you participate in these ceremonies, even if you go just to gain access to the good meat at the table, if you just go through the motions, so to speak, nevertheless, you're declaring your solidarity with these pagans and with their gods. If not in your words, at least by your actions. And even more importantly, the pagans may have been sacrificing to non-existent idols. But Paul says that doesn't mean there wasn't some kind of spiritual power present and active in that moment. And in fact, he says the demonic realm. The demonic world is the power behind the scenes orchestrating these moments. It's a reminder to us that though we cannot see demons, they are evident and present in the world around us just in the fact that you see pagan religion in the world. The fact that there are alternative views of who God is, alternatives to the truth, that is, is proof of the demonic world. The enemy and his army of demons have blinded the unbelieving world, leading them into one kind of false worship or another. And these pagans were the victims, if you will, of that deception. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So the enemy is actively placing false gods before the eyes of the unbelieving world, to distract them from the true light of Christ. And therefore, Paul says that the Corinthian Christians, of all people, should have been sensitive to the message that they were sending when they participated in these pagan meals with all the religious connotations. I mean, if they know the significance of the communion meal, if they can get the fact that when you have blood represented by wine and flesh represented by bread, and it has all this meaning in your communion meal, then how can you ignore the meaning that goes hand in hand with a pagan meal? You have to get that. You have to see that. And so as they choose to return to the temple services and eat that meat whenever they choose to, Paul says they have effectively become sharers with these people in the symbolism of that meal. They have become sharers in demons in that sense. Now, keep in mind, the truth of what Paul says does not require that those individual Christians have in their mind the intention to do those things. 
He's not saying that the Christians who go to the temple are wantingly and consciously deciding to worship demons and support pagan beliefs. He's simply saying that when we unite with them in a symbolic moment, we're effectively creating that outcome, whether it's in our heads or not. Even if you don't agree, your actions speak louder than your words. Can you imagine someone in the moment of that room saying something like, I don't really believe this. I'm just going to eat it anyway. Y'all just don't pay any attention to me. This is not really who I am, but this is such good meat. You know, I'm just going to do this. But in my head, this doesn't really count. Nothing like that even makes any sense, does it? You would watch that and you'd think, you are one crazy dude. It's like you're schizophrenic. You cannot offset the behavior with words or thoughts that discount it. Not on something of this spiritual significance. So you are inadvertently extending honor to demons by participating in something they've constructed. And when you do that, if we were to go do something like this, we're declaring by our actions that what the demons have constructed as a false form of worship is now truth. In contrast, and in violation to what we truly know is, is real. So the problem wasn't the meat. The problem was the message. And if you're one to take notes in the borders of your Bible, just circle chapters 8 through 10 of Corinthians and make that your summary statement. The problem wasn't the meat. The problem was the message. If they proclaim a message of pagan belief by their participation, they diminish their Christian testimony. And at the very least, they confuse the Greek culture around them concerning what a Christian truly believes, which means they've diminished their witness. And then lastly, and Paul raises this now for the first time, even more seriously, they risk provoking the Lord to jealousy, which is never something we want to do. The Lord knows that his children are not truly worshiping pagans. God's not confused, of course. He's not sitting up in heaven wondering where your heart really lies. He knows your heart. But that doesn't mean he approves of you going through the motions. I think it's a very immature perspective for us to say, well, God knows I don't really believe in pagans, so he'll, he'll see past my activity in the temple. I want you to consider, would a husband kissing another woman provoke his wife to jealousy? What if he turned to her and he said, well, that doesn't really mean anything, honey. Do you think that would make it better? <laughs> would a child be jealous if their father spent all his free time with his buddies instead of with them? Would it change anything if the father turned to his child and said, oh, don't worry, I love you more than I love my friends? You see the point? Those words are hollow in light of your actions. And similarly, though the Lord knows our heart, for us to say, well, you know, my real heart, Lord, is hollow in light of our behavior, which dishonors him. So the point is that all relationships we have, including the one we have with the Lord, come with expectations that we will live according to certain guidelines and certain commitments, that our actions will follow from our belief or from our thoughts. If we violate those guidelines, we provoke the other party. That's what we all know from real life. It makes no difference what we think we're doing. It only makes a difference what the injured party thinks we're doing. And when we join in celebrations designed by demons to replace a relationship with God, then we provoke the God who died to save us from that nonsense. It makes no difference what we tell ourselves or anyone else. Eventually, our unrestrained flesh will pull us deeper and deeper into that idolatry so that it's actually likely that though we start off saying we don't really believe in it, before you know it, we might actually start to be confused by it. Now, for all our discussion about idols and meat and temples and the like, it may be at this point that you and I are struggling to figure out, well, where do I go with this? Because though Paul's made the application for this church, I'm not sure where in my life this 
concept starts to apply because we don't have temples with meat being sacrificed, at least not very commonly. And that's not what draws us away, generally speaking. But our world still presents an awful lot of opportunities to apply this same principle. Situations where the activity itself is not the problem, where our liberty allows us to do certain things. And yet, in the way that activity is commonly practiced, we would have good reason to reconsider our involvement because of the message it sends. I can make a long list of some of these, so I'll just give you a couple of examples that came to mind. I think it's fair to say that our current culture, the world in general, has become enamored of late in the last few decades with Eastern mysticism, with pseudo-religious practices that have their source in Eastern pagan thought, yoga, meditation, chanting, Eastern medicine, and stuff of the like. Now, once again, are these things wrong in and of themselves? No. To repeat Paul, right? We know these things have no power behind them. We know they're simply the unbelieving world. For some of you, they may be things that are perfectly appropriate because of the context in which you practice them. I could see a Christian yoga group, potentially, I guess, depending on what the message is in that activity. But my point is that as they're commonly practiced in the culture at large, there could be moments where some of these things, and many others like them, pose issues. Certain entertainment venues, certain kinds of entertainment offerings, Certain Hollywood productions, certain television productions, certain music productions. You see the problem? There's nothing wrong with TV or movies or music. The issue is, what's the message we send when we approve certain things? The point is, the enemy is just as active today as he was in Paul's day. He is still the father of lies. He is still working behind the scenes to create alternatives to the Lord for the unbelieving world. And many of his inventions are dressed up like wolves in sheep's clothing. They look harmless enough, and the world has embraced them for one reason or another. But that doesn't mean we live without concern for the messages they hold or for what testimony comes from our involvement. Paul says in Philippians 1.9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, and then he adds, but in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul says, I want to see more love and more love and more love, but I want to see that love exercised in real knowledge and in all discernment. And then he adds, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. His point is, we are condemned by what we approve if we approve things that are bad. And I'm not going to belabor the issue of examples because with every example there's a counter-argument and with every example there's an exception. The point is, it's the message. And if we're not conscious of the message we send, We can be quick to dismiss any concerns and run headlong into an activity or to a to something in our life that carries risks and maybe even idolatry, etc. We ask ourselves this question, not whether it's lawful for virtually anything you can name is lawful apart from obvious immorality. But the question is, what's the best way for me to serve Christ and his people? To serve Christ in the witness I have and in the message I send through my life and his people through how I edify others and not tear them down. What's the message I want to send? Paul answers that in verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So among all of the myriad of choices you and I have, What we ask ourselves is not, which ones are we allowed to do? Because as I said, Paul says, you're virtually always going to come to the conclusion that you can do it. The question should be, which ones are the most profitable for the sake of the gospel and for my eternal reward? Which ones result in building up my brothers and sisters in the faith rather than just merely building up my own flesh or ego? 
That's the question you ask. If we ask that question with a sincere heart, we come back with a sincere answer. There are going to be some things that we never imagined off limits that we suddenly feel we can't do anymore. And then there are going to be other things where we feel a complete liberty to do so. And in the right context, we know we have no reason to hesitate. And as we live out our liberty, we have to seek, Paul says, the good of others above our own. So in the question of eating temple meat, when that came to the minds of those in Corinth, here's what they should have been doing. They should have first asked, how would my choice in this matter impact other believers in the city? What will the unbelievers in the temple or the market think when they see a Christian appearing to be supportive of pagan beliefs and pagan ritual? Or will my choice make it easier or harder for me to persuade others concerning the gospel? These are the questions they should have been asking. If they asked those questions, how many of them would have ended up in a temple service eating meat? But because the church is not as wise as they think they are, Paul now finishes this chapter laying out the rules. Remember I said as a good teacher, you want to make the application for the student so that you can show them the whole picture. Well, he now does that. So look at verses 25 through 30. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, well, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for consciousness sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for consciousness sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Paul starts by saying the church is free to eat the meat, which is what he started with, by the way. He hasn't changed his mind on this. He started that way in chapter 8. You can eat the meat. But he asks them to observe these guidelines because these guidelines are the practical outworking of the principles he's given. What are the guidelines? Well, he says, first of all, if you go shopping in the Agora and you see all this meat out for display and the shop owners are all standing behind their wares and you walk up and you go to buy the meat, for crying out loud, don't ask them where the meat came from. That's his first thought. He says, look, just shop in blissful ignorance. It's all meat. We know that. We know that there is no real distinction from God's point of view. So you know that. So don't make an issue of it. Just buy it and don't think again. If you are invited to someone's house, a pagan, presumably an unbeliever, presumably, or even if it's a Christian and you know they had to go shop in the market, just like you had to go shop in the market. Same problem. Don't ask. Just eat it and you're fine. Paul's saying, and he quotes actually from Deuteronomy 10:14, there is no difference with any meat, any product you could eat, any food you can eat. God has made it all. It's all good. It's all to be taken in thankfulness. You don't have to actually worry that there's some mystical difference between them. Just enjoy it. But the point here is not in keeping us ignorant, for our ignorance isn't what makes us holy. Because you could take this principle and go way off into some wacky places, Right? You could say, so long as I don't know I'm sinning, I'm free to do whatever I want. I mean, if you really wanted to distort what he's saying, you might try to push that idea. That's not at all what he's saying, of course. We know exactly what we're doing. We know the meat is not sinful. That's why we can eat it. Paul makes it very clear. The point of this is not your conscience. The point is the conscience of the other person that you're concerned with. Paul says in verse 25, we aren't to ask the origins of the meat for conscience sake. And in verse 29, he says it's because of the other person's conscience, not the believer's conscience, 
that he wants you to be concerned about these things. And of course, his point is, don't initiate a conversation that then obligates you to protect their conscience. Once you open that door, you now have to deal with the answer in a way that protects their conscience. And if the answer comes back the wrong way, you now have to act accordingly because of what you're doing to them if you don't. So when a Christian shopper asked a pagan shop owner if the meat came from a temple service, and that shop owner says, oh yes, this is meat sacrificed to an idol, that now makes that conversation have spiritual dimensions. Where before it was just a transaction, now it's a spiritual conversation. Before that moment, the shop owner knew nothing about the shopper, and the shopper knew nothing about the meat, and it could just be a transaction. But now, what does the shop owner know? Now the shop owner realizes that this person is one of those people who have rejected pagan beliefs. They're one of those Christians. They're one of those people who have declared that there are not pagan gods. There's only one true living God, and they have now come to know and follow that God. Furthermore, the shopper has now been put on notice that this meat is meat that's been sacrificed to one of those foreign gods that they've rejected. And the shop owner knows that as well. So everything's out in the open. What do you think's in the mind of the shop owner? The next thing that he's thinking is, I wonder what they're going to do with this knowledge. I wonder if this is going to change their shopping behavior. I wonder if they're going to object. Let's see what happens next. Whether that's a conscious narrative in their head or just an unconscious realization, the point is the same. What the Christian does next will leave an indelible impression on the mind of this pagan. And Paul says, when you consider their interests in this moment, you have to act differently. This is such a powerful example of living with concern for the needs of others above your own. Think about this from the point of view of the Christian. One moment, they're enjoying the potential of this wonderful meat that they're preparing to purchase. That's an interest that they have. The next moment, because the conversation took place, now they're refraining or should refrain from buying that meat. Why? Because of the needs of the shop owner taking precedence over their own fleshly desire. That's what Paul means when he says, Do everything that you do for the sake of others, not for the sake of yourself. So you walk away and you say, I'm sorry, I can't eat that meat. Leaving the right impression in this man's mind that we do not share with them in demons. We do not share with them in pagan views. Interestingly, Paul says in verse 29, our freedom does not depend on another man's approval. Paul says no one can or should try to rob me of my liberty to eat that meat simply because they personally don't approve of my behavior. However, I am called to restrain my liberties whenever necessary to avoid harming the conscience of another. Paul is talking about where does the control lie? Is the control in the hand of the shop owner or is the control for this situation, for the decisions that are being made, does that control remain with the Christian? And Paul is saying unequivocally, the control remains with the Christian. It is not as though their conscience robbed me of my liberty. My liberty is not robbed by any man's conscience. Rather, it is my choice to restrain my liberty for the sake of their conscience. Why does he want you to understand this principle? Because I think he's concerned about legalism emerging out of this rule. I can illustrate Paul's point with a simple example from our experience today. Christians have liberty to drink alcoholic beverages according to Scripture. However... There are pockets of Christians, and you may know some, who disapprove personally of Christians drinking alcohol. They don't drink, and they think no Christian should. And some of these people may even cast judgment upon other Christians who choose to do so. 
we need not, Paul says, we need not doubt our liberty to drink merely because another person, be them a Christian or whatever, because of their disapproval. We don't have to doubt our own liberty just because someone else doesn't approve of it. However, when I am around that person, I refrain from drinking to avoid injuring their conscience. So I've not given up drinking since I know I have liberty to do so, and I'm thankful to God that I might enjoy it. However, I gladly abstain from drinking around those who object out of respect for their conscience. So the control is mine. The liberty hasn't been diminished. But self-restraint out of love for another is the right choice. And it's not hypocritical, by the way. I think it would be hypocritical if we chose to portray ourselves as someone who agrees with their view while at other times imbibing when they're not around. That would be hypocritical. And Peter does that very thing in the first chapter of Galatians when Peter would eat with the Gentiles when there were no Jews around. But when a Jew showed up, he would refrain from eating with Gentiles, pretending as if that's something inappropriate. That's hypocrisy. What we're saying is if anyone asks, I say, yes, drinking is permissible. But when I'm around people who don't appreciate it, I simply change my behavior. I don't change my story, and I don't try to pretend I'm someone I'm not, but I change my behavior. I restrain my liberty. So Paul concludes with a succinct summary, and we can just use his words to summarize it for us. He says in verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So this is your golden rule to finish the discourse on Christian liberty. And like we know, the golden rule is to do unto others what we'd like to see done to ourselves, right? This is a sort of golden rule in that respect, that God's glory is the goal of all that we do when we make these decisions. So God's glory is magnified. When we act in love toward God and toward our neighbor, he is magnified in glory when we preach the gospel by our actions, not just our words. He is glorified when we discipline our flesh for the needs of the gospel. He is glorified when we flee immorality out of respect for our body, which is the temple of God. The goal is to glorify God. The goal is not to see who can exercise the most liberty before we die. The goal is to see who can exercise the most self-restraint out of love, not out of piety, but out of love and for the purpose of glorifying God. These are the reasons we've been saved and left here on earth. I come back to the thought of why am I still here? Right. I'm not going to be here forever. I know that I've been saved for eternity and yet he's left me here for a time. Why? The only answer you can come to for that is because there's work he wants to do through me that happens in this period Make the most of it. Use the time and the decisions you make for the glory of God. Let's finish out of John 17. Just going to read and pray at the end. John 17, Jesus prays this this fabulous prayer that you probably know in John 17 to the Father on our behalf. I want you to know what's on Jesus' heart concerning how we use our time on earth. Look what he says in John 17, 15 through 23. He says, I do not ask you to take them, meaning us, the believers. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but... To keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I give to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. We are to be one in unity so that the world may know that he was sent. Let's use our time for that purpose. And we'll come back next week into the next section of the letter. Let's pray. Father, I ask that everything we do, everything we say, every action we consider, every decision we make, would be guided by what is best for your glory. And even though there will be many times we fall short of that goal, we ask, Lord, that you'd continue in your patience and in your steadfastness and your faithfulness to point us back to what are the right things in our life. Give us a renewed understanding. Let us seek to glorify you and to please others before we do ourselves. And we know our liberty is endless, Father, and we thank you for it and we're joyful over it. But let it be self-restraint that marks our lives and let our concern for others trump our concern for ourselves. Give us that sensitivity, Father. And I thank you for the reminder that you gave us in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.